0: Hi, I'm Melissa Carroll. And I'm Val Spees. And you're listening to The Lotus Pondcast.
1: Welcome, everyone. We're so excited today to be talking uh, with master yoga teacher, Karen Stefan. She is the master teacher of our teacher training program at um, The Lotus Pond, as well as her teachings that go beyond that scope. I'll tell you just a little bit about Karen to start with. Uh, She is a leading Iyengar yoga teacher in the United States uh, with a career that has spanned more than 48 years. She credits her understanding and appreciation of the human body to the teachings of BKS Iyengar. a student of Mr. Iyengar since 1972 and a certified Iyengar teacher, Uh, Karen, incorporates his insights and acute sense of observation into her practice and teachings on a daily basis. Karen first met Mr. Iyengar on a visit to Bombay, India in 1969 and Mr. Iyengar's focus on yoga as precision in action complemented her interest in structure and aesthetics, a theme which runs through her teaching. In 1985, she co-founded the BKS Iyengar Yoga Center of Cambridge with Patricia Walden. And this is her life, yoga is her life. I have worked very closely with Karen over the past uh, 14 or 15 years and I'm just never ceased to be amazed by her consistency in her practice. Um, there are so many yoga teachers that they, they uh, step into the role of teacher and they teach one thing, but then in their actual lives, you see quite a different picture. picture. And Karen is the true practice of yoga through and through. And I've seen it over many years and never seen her slip out of that that beautiful um, space that she holds, not once over 14 or 15 years.
0: It's so, so inspiring and just so wonderful to get to chat with you today, Karen. Thank you for being here with us. And Karen, you are a lover of the arts. Your writing and your teaching often beautifully weave a line of poetry with an action in a yoga pose. And art itself is transcendent, right? A line of poetry or a piece of music or a painting can lift us up out of ourselves. I think that's one of the reasons why, as a human species, we love art and we need art. It lifts us up out of our problems and our worries and our dramas, if only for a few moments. Yoga is, of course, the path of transcendence as well. And to begin our conversation, I would just love to hear your thoughts on how the arts and yoga intersect and inform one another.
2: Thank you so much, Melissa. And thank you, Val, for such a beautiful introduction. I I feel so, so blessed to know you and both of you and be part of the Lotus Bond and and just to... Uh, I always feel so happy after I've been there. I go home and I just feel so happy inside. And I think there's such a beautiful spirit that you emanate there. And I'm I'm so glad to be part of it. So, um, And also, I I do feel very much appreciated for who I am. I don't feel like I have to be someone else, but anybody but myself. Uh, Let me just talk a little bit about the influence and the intermingling and interweaving of art with yoga. So I, first of all, a little bit about my background. I had a degree in English literature. I went to Northwestern. Um, I was also a water ballerina and I did a lot of performances even at Northwestern. I did it with the, with the theater department. I was Alice in Wonderland the first year and it was a huge sellout and I did all these solos. But the year before in high school, I played Joan of Arc and we did the Gershwin's American in Paris. And my, my best friend did Marie Antoinette, right? And in the Joan of Arc, I, I stood on the edge of the diving board. I had pinned my whole body in gold. And I trolled into the water. It was this very languorous scene. And I went underwater and I didn't come up for a very long time. So it was basically my swan song, right? And, uh, this thrill, of combining music, art, literature, with yoga is is really, it started very early on, let's put it that way, to start with. I studied classical piano, let's start with that. But secondly, it's really what thrills me the most, the, the, the mixture. And while I'm very interested in Indian philosophy to a certain degree, I felt as though the best way I can find my own voice is to follow my own passions. And my own passions were nurtured in the soil of Western artistic aesthetic culture, right? So that's, that's number one. So that's the context out of which I've grown. I felt like my understanding of the body, while I had this tremendous influence from Mr. Ingar, to understand how to convey what I knew was to be able to draw on poets, to draw on sculptors. I'm so influenced by the sculptures of Brancusi, Rodin, right? Henry Moore. Um, and you go and look at pieces of sculpture in a museum, and if you're physically oriented, your body is responding somatically to that. The the physical body is responding tactically, kinesthetically, in time and space to the sculpture, right? And then it teaches you something. For example, you probably read in a recent, a recent, um, essay I wrote about building strength in the upper body about seeing this Richard Serra one-ton block I just saw a photograph of it and it looks light completely light like you could pick it up and when he was interviewed about it he said the reason it looks light is because all the parts are balanced Mm. Mm All the parts are balanced. Then I said, okay, how can I make my forearm balances, my handstands look light, my headstand? Balancing the parts. So when you
1: were, what, in your 20s, you were drawn to Paris, which uh, must have been very exciting for you uh, with your interest in art and. Literature, and I I understand that you hung out in cafes, as we all, you know, see in those movies, and uh, all wish that we could have been into uh, scenes like that. Uh, So that that must have been pretty exciting for you, moving to Paris. How did that happen?
2: Well, it wasn't the first time I've been to Paris. I've been to Paris many times with my parents. Okay. So I was I was introduced to Paris, and I and I was in love with it as a city. Mm-hmm. Uh how did it happen that I got there or
1: well you ended up moving there for a while right was it a visit where it just got extended or did you intentionally um go there to stay for years or
2: No no I I um was I was on a trip to Europe and I I got caught in Greece for about 6 months oh <laughs> for you <laughs> and I had a Greek boyfriend that I was traveling with a woman who left Greece earlier she was a friend of mine from college and she called me up and said, you've got to come back. You've got to leave Greece. Basically you've got to leave this guy, which is true because he really wasn't suitable for me. Hope he isn't alive and here's this interview. But uh, <laughs> um, So she was in Paris and I came, I came back uh, and I went, I I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I wanted to, I wanted to write a novel in Paris. Mm. I didn't want to move there. I wanted to go live there and have these experiences and write a novel. Like, and I was very influenced by Aeneas Nin. I don't know if you know who she is. Yes. I was totally, and her triumvirate with, with um, Lawrence Durrell and Henry Miller. This right. in a way, intellectual menage class. I was so taken with that. And I wanted to rep, I wanted to repeat that, right? I wanted a repeat of that experience. So anyway, I landed in Paris and I found my own apartment eventually. And um, I encountered this very interesting man shortly about six months into living in Paris. And I had a, he was a, a, a lover, a boyfriend, right? And I had a long, it was a long relationship with him, but it wasn't just a one-on-one with him alone. (laughs) The the relationship is still going on because I'm writing about it. it, He's dead. He's been dead for a long time, but I'm still writing about it. This person brought me immediately into the crème de la crème intellectual milieu of Paris. He was already well-known as a, as a as a 21, 21 he'd already, already written an, an essay on a famous writer that had been published with some of the top writers in Paris at the time, right? And um, Cocteau, uh, Paul Morhan, I don't know if you know them, but believe me, it was impressive. I finally found the essay about a year ago. And so I hung out with him and we went to movies, the time of Cinematheque, we would see three movies a day. <laughs> and then we'd spend our time talking about them, talking about books. He introduced me to all these French writers. And we hung out and we had lunch and dinner and drank wine and drank coffee and met in the Gardenberg Gardens, met in the cafes. That was about three years where I was doing this very wonderful, bohemian, literary cafe society life. And However, I'm gonna admit this, I was drinking too much wine. I kind of got caught in the, in the wine culture of the, of the cafes and the restaurants. How could you not? <laughs> and, it was, and it was not doing me so good, let's put it that way. Um, I was starting to get kind of melancholic. And I, mind you, I'm in full honesty, I had been drinking before that too. So I was a little bit in that culture.
0: You're such a brilliant writer. Uh, just even getting a glimpse of your writing in your newsletters that you send out, and we will also include the link in the show notes of this interview that people can sign up for your email, so they can also get oh, a taste.
2: Right.
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. It's it's your your writing is absolutely beautiful and skillful, and actually in your May newsletter, you write this beautiful passage about standing on slippery rocks for a photo shoot, and it really is this perfect metaphor for what I believe so many of us are feeling right now in May of 2020. We're feeling unmoored, generally speaking, destabilized, um, really just, just plain wobbly, confronting a lot of uncertainty. And so I'm curious, how have you been navigating this, this slippery time? And what advice can you give us to help keep our bearings?
2: First of all, the, the, those times, and I go back to when I was young, uh, visiting my aunt in Sweden in the archipelagos, and we would walk down to this alcove and swim in it. And the, the, there was moss on the rocks, and what we'd walk down towards the Baltic Sea. You you really and and even jumping off the rocks, you had to be careful not to slip as you jumped or as you dove into the water, right? Uh and I walked barefoot. So that I felt like that truly was an introduction to the whole idea of standing on my feet, right? Being sturdy on my feet. Then I was lucky enough to study um modern dance with a teacher studied with Martha Graham, mm-hmm. and again, bare feet, right? And now we have this wonderful art, wonderful science of yoga, which is built on stability. The asanas are built on the premise of stability. Stability on your feet, stability on your hands if you're doing handstands, On your arms, if you're doing forearm balance, right? And I felt like the first thing I had to do Val sent me home for a good reason after Trump declared the national emergency. I was going to stay for another 10 days and I came home. And at first, when I got here, I thought I felt like I was curling inside a whirlwind. What am I going to do? How am I going to? My students have paid for the whole semester oh uh, you know and then my friend elena next door said well we're gonna you're gonna here's my ipad and you're gonna start teaching classes within three days I said, oh my hair i've got a Karen we're gonna do with what we have right so that was a very good message from her but what it did was it threw me immediately into the need to become a leader to pull the people around me together. And I felt that I didn't really have a choice. That that so all the all the difficulty of technology said it didn't bother me at all. Okay, you tell me how to do it, I'll do it. And I just gathered all my energy and my presence and I said, if I'm not strong, how can those who study with me feel that strength? So First thing I did was to make sure that I didn't get sick. Uh, Even even having the sniffles. Because if I had the sniffles or a cough early on, people would get, uh uh-oh, Karen's, she's 78. She's, you know, whatever. So I did long headstand, long shoulder stand. Every single day, sometimes twice a day. Right? Then I also practiced a lot of work with on my feet you know balancing poses dancers pose half moon and I began to draw the whole notion of alignment and balance into my teaching and of course all my classes that I teach I'm demonstrating now I'm doing them at the same time so that that I don't usually do so that anchored me even more right then I I said What can I focus on more than anything else? So immediately what I did was I drew all my thought process to how to help those around me who studied with me, who depended on me, who cared about me, and who wanted to learn from me, right? So I said, well, this is the lungs. We've got to work on pranayama. We've got to work on the breathing. So I set up a structure where each class had the same format. We started on the floor. We started with early preparation for breathing pranayama. And then we went on our sitting positions, then on our knees standing, and on the floor again. And I actually have not varied that format since. So what I did was I created a consistency, right? And consistency for me. In other words, my teaching, if I started experimenting too much with this and that, that made me would feel, that would make me feel. Uh, what is the word? un or what's that word? un Unmoored, um, right? To experiment too much on my end. Oh, let me try the big screen TV. Let me try. I couldn't do it. I had to keep myself within a box too, to have the most force. So I had to contain myself to give out the greatest energy, right? And then the other thing is. Karen, you've got to get a, of course, I do this as much as I can. Get, get a good night's sleep every night. You cannot take any risks now. I didn't want my students to feel any shakiness inside of me at all, right? So um, it wasn't difficult for me to handle this because it was almost though I had a a mandate. I'd given myself that mandate, right? Mm. Do that. And I I felt I like couldn't, I couldn't veer from that.
1: Right I've seen you uh, move in that direction uh, just in in everyday life as well Karen as you have have said to me before um, that your personal practice is is not a choice it's not it's an, not an option to skip a personal practice that right. uh, you have that that strong constitution that can stay, you know, just steady on course. And that does give uh, your students and the people around you so much confidence. I know when I call you on the phone that I will feel that stability no matter what's going on. And that's incredibly uh, important as a teacher. And uh, you're such a, a beautiful role model of that. Thank you, Bill. Very uh,
2: nice.
1: In uh, your newsletter as well, you were writing about Iyengar and quoting uh, him saying, it takes tremendous concentration to let the energy flow from the feet. Then you are near the self. And he was talking about bringing the unconscious into the conscious. How the mind is, your spirit is, how you draw that even through through the stand of the feet, you know. um, Right. Right. All of that comes together in your teachings and in the students' experience.
2: Right. Well, stand of the feet and also standing on the head, too. Whatever, you know how Langer talks about the portion nearest the ground is the brain to understanding the pose. So there's a lot of emphasis on what is nearest the ground, whether you're doing it this way, you know, with in headstand or forearm balance or back bends or you're doing it on your feet. Um, how you bring that into the self. Um, I mean he the self is is used on um, it's a kind of this center of our being where our greatest the greatest part of our soul is, so to speak, right? The expansion of the soul. Working from the feet up, if we were just to work on standing poses from the feet up, we wouldn't have quite the same stabi- stability as when we combine that with our downward dog, our upper back openers, our, our back bends, our twisting poses, where we're working on the back, where we're working on lifting through the diaphragm and turning from the center outwards. This This ability of our body to This anti-gravitational quality of our body to soar and there I'm influenced by Brancusi's birds in flight when I think about that the we, we have this ability to soar but it also is dependent on building the strength in the core of our body and in the upper body as well so there's the groundiness of the feet right and feeling the contact of the feet with the surface. I'll never forget a class where he said, it isn't just the feet that come to the surface, it's the surface that comes to the feet. Uh, That's so amazing. I mean, only someone like him would think of something like that. So you're standing on your mat, and your mind is like, what am I going to have for... And then suddenly you bring your feet, what am I going to have for lunch, and then you come to your feet. <laughs> and then you feel the, the rubber mat underneath the feet, coming to the feet. You see? See? And then you work on, let's say you work on half moon pose, which is a standing pose, but also develops the strength in the back, in the ribs, in the diaphragm, right? Or you work on downward dog, plank, upward dog, or you work on warrior one, right? So you bring, you bring, bring all that into this anti gravitational work and also this stability from the ground. And it all sort of meets in the middle here, right? In the middle of our, of our, in, in Indian philosophy, the mind is located in the middle of the chest, right? It's not, the mind isn't the mind that uses to think? it's something else, right? And so I think there's this ebulence, this feeling almost of, that you could fly when you feel both stable and strong and you can lift yourself against gravity, but you can also give in to gravity, right? So all this soul, spiritual, it has a very concrete quality to it. It's embedded in the concrete world, if you know what I mean. Okay? Yes. It's, it's, uh, the, the more concrete you make it, the more you soar. Mm. That's fascinating. And that's and that's I think that's one of the gifts that Mr. Anger has given us. Right? Oh, what a beautiful description. So I hope that answered the question.
1: Absolutely. And
2: beyond. Okay.
0: <laughs> um, and
2: it reminds You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? you oh, absolutely. felt that. You know?
0: So In your in your classes I have very much so. And <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, good. I try to. I want to get that across.
0: (laughs) Yes. And it's part of that, too, is what you were mentioning in your most recent essay about translating physical action into spiritual action. And I believe this is a quote from Mr. Iyengar, your intelligence should extend everywhere. And that, as long as our intelligence lingers only in the brain, that is when we will suffer. I think that points to what you were just talking right. about, how we right. can really translate and uh, transfer our center of awareness into our toes, into the soles of the feet with that quality of precision. And that mm-hmm. is so definitive of how you move in your yoga practice and how that then permeates to how you move about your life.
2: Right, right. And he would talk about, He, I remember him yelling from across the room one time saying, keep the cells, keep the candles of your cells of fire. Uh-huh. Candles of your cells of fire. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're probably doing warrior two. Keep the candles of your cells of fire. You know? uh-huh. he, he meant light up all parts of your body as you work the poses. And so here you were <laughs> going back to Paris. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> you had um, continued on the path that you were on. And this is, you know, this is a question that really has no answer, but it's sometimes fun to contemplate. If you had not uh, shifted gears and started bringing all of these beautiful experiences that you had had, I to the studies of yoga if you had continued on the path of um, hanging out in the cafes and uh, going down that road how would your life be different from today i mean your life is so absorbed in yoga can you even picture where it would have been otherwise
2: now that would be assuming that i hadn't worked my body a lot before i began to do yoga Mm-hmm. So don't forget, I came to Paris, but I had already been a water ballerina, studied modern dance, right. etc. So uh, I probably would have worked my way back to some sort of physical expression of the body, right? Be it studying more modern dance or... But I'm not sure it would have transformed me. What, what the yoga did, uh, and it was, it was more the vinyasa in the beginning that I was learning, from Patabi Joyce. In the very beginning, my then teacher, who who then I um, started a yoga center with and raised his children, um, was teaching on a yacht on the Seine, right near my apartment. Not Pitabi Joyce. No, but Rishi, yes, one of his okay. uh, No, 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 no. My bad. We just, we just four people, right? Okay. And, uh, uh so i would have this kind of i lived in this kind of shabby seven floor walk up the perfect venue to write a novel you couldn't find a better place right (laughs) but what i would what did i do i'd have dinner parties for all my brilliant friends and drink too much and never write anything right but i had a lot of interesting conversations so um i when i the yoga started transforming the current situation that i was living in now what i want to say and how i want to answer this is the following i probably would have worked my way back to some sort of expression of the body and i probably would have worked my way towards vegetarianism somehow and i probably would have stopped drinking right what i now see however is that literary life that i was living with and i'm living and i'm in touch with one of our group who's a very famous artist now uh, living just had a huge retrospective 60 years of his work very brilliant brilliant artist i'm in touch with him now but that milieu suited me nonetheless that intellectual milieu right so it it suited me it, I felt I feel at, at home, I felt at home with it. you understand? Going into the yoga and going into this more spiritual life and leaving reading behind for a while and movies and all that exploration, getting closer to nature was wonderful, but it was only part of me. So how I want to answer that is i'm if I could have gotten control, Of my, well, this wouldn't be blunt. If I could have gotten control of my drinking and started taking better care of myself and becoming more focused, I might have started writing earlier. Mm -hmm. That, that, um, and and continued living that literary life, right? Now I feel like I've, I've combined the life, those, that life, the two things. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I might have, but I would have had to do a lot of psychotherapy or something to help me you know, get through all this. I still work with a therapist, by the way. Um, so that that may have been what happened, but I also also could have been I might not have lived very long. That also could have gone that way too. <laughs> but knowing that I'd worked a lot with my body before that, I probably wouldn't have let myself go.
1: I just learned so much from you, Karen, over the years about um the the purity of life, of saucha, of living um, in the purest form. And I really loved one time you were explaining to the students that if you uh, drank a glass of wine or if you were overindulging in uh, unhealthy food or sugars or anything, that you wouldn't even want to touch your student the next day. That... Yeah that that's the high quality of what you are offering and I think that's often missed in uh, for many people because that high level of commitment is um, is difficult for many but it's it's such a true way to live and I still if I get sick or anything I do exactly what you've told me in the past of then only eat the brown rice. No sugar, no nothing. This is something for us all to aspire to. I just so admire those qualities in you.
2: Well, thank you, Val. I think they are, thank you so much. I think they're innate in me, probably. Mm-hmm. You see, it's not something, it's not an outfit that I put on to wear. Right. It's something that's, part of who I am and part of who I perhaps always was. Mm-hmm. I, I love teaching so much, and I love the students so much. Even within two days at the pond, by the end of the second day, I just feel so much love for those students in such a short time and my students here that I, I want to live in a way that I can give them the best of myself all the time. Right? and otherwise i don't know if i really should be teaching I, I said in my last interview that a teacher is really a leader right that teacher has to take on the mantle of of because it's easier for people like me i it was this is this isn't a struggle to live how i live it's it's not it's not a struggle <laughs> it's just a natural part of who i am And as long as I keep up my other interests, you know, like my love of the arts and literature, and I listen to podcasts all the time on Proust, on all the new wave. I mean, I'm constantly enriching my life in the other way. As long as I can combine those two worlds, I'm I'm the happiest person alive. I mean, you know, when I wake up and I'm never tired, I feel great. And I'm 78. I never so far gotten sick once in the last 30 years. I don't want to um, pra- praise myself as much as just saying that I, I, it's it's all done for a kind of love of other people, and that that's what makes it easy for me. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And you would know, like if I said if I went on a binge and said, "Oh, the heck with that? I'm going to go out and eat my croissants and have five cappuccinos in a row." <laughs> You I like know I could see that. You would know the next day, Karen's done something off. <laughs> what has she done? She's not herself, right? <laughs> and I couldn't stand that kind of scrutiny. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. life, is, life is difficult, and you have to navigate in the middle. Uh, you know, Val, one of the great things that happened to me <laughs> is I got that book from your house, The Master of Gold. Right that book is so powerful and it's about this game where you're supposed to play these white and black pieces but the beauty of the game is predicated on the ability to not slip up the other person by making an extreme move in other words it goes together aesthetically respecting the aesthetics of the opponent, right? Mm. So you walk together in this beautiful way, and one will win, can take a year. And in the master of go, this upstart makes an extreme move off of the center. And the writer, who who's a Nobel Prize winner, said it felt like he had smeared the board with black ink. And after that, the master, who was being uh, challenged by the upstart, started getting sick and eventually died, right? So I feel that we're playing this game of go in the classical, purest sense of the word. You go forward a little bit, I go, and we keep the same balance as we go together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the people we spend time with are people who understand my level of balance, and my understanding, your level of balance. See, so we've we've walked we walk together, right? And then nothing can go wrong.
0: That's beautiful. In the context of yoga, in particularly as I, I think of yoga in as a cultural phenomenon in the United States, and. Oh, yeah. You've been teaching for uh, longer than many yoga teachers out there. And I imagine you've witnessed this tremendous expansion, this surge in popularity in, in yoga and m- in many ways uh, for, for perhaps perceived good and, and bad, maybe, uh, with, its, uh, with the way that yoga has grown and expanded uh, in the West, and particularly in the United States, so I'm I'm curious, and if you could talk a little bit about what you've observed over the years, and perhaps where you see yoga heading in this this new world, you know, as you have all also recently adapted your yoga uh, to fit the new world that we are navigating day by day with teaching on Zoom
2: too. So, just so you know, when I first started coming to the United States, we were te- teaching the Ashtanga Yoga. I was coming with Rishi, 1970. Do you know how many yoga studios there were? None. <laughs> Two. <laughs> Two. <laughs> <laughs> Two. Now there's way over 20 million people doing yoga in the United States, right? Um, I love it. I love the fact that yoga has expanded. Um, I'm of the Iyengard tradition, which is very demanding. And to become my, my certification was given to me if I had to go through the loops, I'm not sure I would have made it, <laughs> it was handed to me, uh, junior intermediate. And, um, so that rigor is, is, I think that rigor held, held things together. That it, it was a standard by which other yoga things would happen, right? And you have two major paths. You have the Ashtanga, the flow, and then you have more of the Iyengar alignment work and they can join together. They they don't have to be separate. I know people who've done the flow, but they also study Iyengar. It helps them in their, in their flow, et cetera. And I, I used to teach the Ashtanga yoga, so I know what that is. Um, uh, I don't, i I'm, I'm I feel really good that it has expanded so much. I don't like to hear stories like on Long Island where go and have they bring their wine to class or something you know, somehow
0: yeah beer you know, yoga is very popular
2: that, that really that is that really bothers me because yoga refines the brain right and then you add alcohol in the moment that's scary to me but i don't want to go there but i don't think that's necessary uh but i think uh yoga has helped so many millions of people where i see it going i have no idea i i i want to i want to think i understand you're back in physical presence right and i'm coming shortly where i will be teaching physically too um i my sense is that it's we're gonna work our way back naturally, right? In the meantime, we work with these standards and guidelines. And my sense, it it will be a little bit of both. It will be uh, some classes maybe I'll hold online for those who want to just do it online, and some classes I'll hold in physical space. Some classes, maybe if I can figure out how you're doing it, I can be videoed at the same time that I'm teaching, right? So people have a choice. This is a new paradigm, and I think some people like it. They don't have to get on their winter boots. They don't have to get on their winter hats. They don't have to find a parking place. (laughs) They can roll. They can do yoga in their pajamas, right? (laughs) Uh, I think some people are gonna keep keep it. If the teachers are gonna keep it, I think some people will keep the online teaching. Uh, I don't think it's gonna wither away. I had that thought. Oh my gosh, will yoga wither away? It passed through my mind. But I think it's too anchored, it's too It's too established. I don't think it will wither away. I think it's here to stay. I, I agree. But I'm not much of a visionary, Melissa, in that sense. I'm too, a little too much in here now. I'm, I have to say, I, I wish I could say, oh, I, I wish I could be like Elon Musk, is that his name? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not that type of person. Like, I'm worried about, um, you know, my foot workshop at the end of the week of this weekend. uh, At the end of the month, I'm going to do that in New York, and I'm worried about my your workshop down. That's as far as I go. (laughs) <laughs> I think
0: that's the way for many of us, they say. <laughs> yeah, the here, there's nothing wrong with being in the here and now. I think that's where, what most of us are actually trying to establish ourselves in.
2: <laughs> well, learning this technology is obviously the technology's here to stay. And some teaching will happen on technology, mm-hmm. I think. So let's just take it day by day. And uh, we're learning a lot, aren't we? Yes, we are. We really are.
0: We are. And I, I actually think that yoga will potentially become even uh, more popular because people will realize that these tools and the mindfulness that, and the presence that we can cultivate through the practice is so beneficial as we, as we navigate day by day.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's definitely not going to uh, wane.
1: Mm-hmm. And likewise, of your teachings, they will um, there will forever be so close to our hearts. And uh, this opportunity to speak with you uh, in this interview um, that we can share with
2: our students is is a real gift. Well, I'd love love to do it again, and I'm so much looking forward to coming in July. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, you then, and thank you so much. I love you both, and I love all the students and
0: wonderful and melissa where will this be available this will be available on spotify on anchor and across many of the platforms you can follow us on those podcast platforms and please do so because that helps the podcast get out there and great conversations like this can be accessible to more folks you can also find out all the information about when Karen Stefan will be at the Lotus Pond in July offering her asana workshops, and where you can practice with us at the Lotus Pond, both online, wherever you are in the world, and in person as well at lotuspondyoga.com. Wonderful. Thank you both. We love you, Karen. I love you too.